0: Hello, everyone. Welcome to a special live recording of Ruth is Stranger Than Fiction. This episode is the recording of an event that was held at the Museum of Cambridge on the 28th of October 2022. The Museum of Cambridge is a brilliant place. It's full of all sorts of exhibits and things, specimens to do with folklore, Cambridge life, the fens, all the good stuff. Do go and check out their website and visit if you're in the area. It's a a wonderful museum. In this episode, we're talking about folk magic, witchcraft, and some stories from these things from the, the Cambridge area. And we'll also talk about some of the exhibits from the museum as well. If you want to find more of our episodes, you can find us on your usual podcast providers. You can visit us at ruthistranger.co.uk and you can follow us on Instagram at ruth underscore is underscore stranger. I think that's it from me for now. Uh, Enjoy the episode. See you soon. shall I say it? Yep, do it. Welcome to Ruth is Stranger Than Fiction. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Um, it's an uh, absolute delight to be back here again. We, um, we did a live event here earlier this year in May which was fantastic and I love the museum and it's a real honour to be able to to talk here and as Amy says please do consider donating as well because it's just a fantastic resource and you'll see if you have a look around afterwards it's just an absolute treasure trove of curiosities and interesting marvels that you wouldn't see anywhere else. Okay, and this is Katie Holliday. Thanks um, for having me will back. be joining me today. For those of you who aren't familiar with the podcast, we talk about all kinds of different strange histories from all around the East Anglian region. We have covered strange figures from folklore, ghost stories. Clowns in tubs. Clowns in tubs, that was just once. <laughs> that was a, a one-off. Murder mysteries, all kinds of different things. So today... I would like to talk a little bit about witchcraft and folk magic. And I am going to refer to some of the objects in the museum here as well, so you can have a look at them afterwards. I have some slides, but the real thing is better, right? So, so I think to start us off, I would like to tell a really local story. It's especially local to me. I live in Trumpington on the south side of Cambridge, and I came across this story, which is a really kind of typical like local witch story about a woman in trumpington who came to be known as a witch um, it's gonna end badly isn't it they it doesn't it doesn't end too badly <laughs> some of them do end badly this witch was known as mother seville she lived that's quite uh,
1: fancy for trumpington seville well okay you know, it's it's just quite yeah exotic. maybe
0: trumpington was more fancy 200 years ago i mean now it's just full of mcphee's so we're not yeah. saying that's not, i'm not saying that isn't fancy but it's just yeah she lived by all accounts in an old a thatched, tumble-down cottage, of course, just across the way from where the Lord Byron pub is today. And Trumpington was obviously quite different yeah, Do you those have cost
1: a fortune now, of course. A witch couldn't afford those Not houses
0: now. <laughs> <laughs> no. There's a few accounts from uh, sort of different points about Mother Seville. I think she lived in around the early 1800s when you look, look at these accounts, but it, of course it's a bit vague. That's quite late for often when we're witching, isn't it? It's, a la- it's later than the witch trials, so we'll, we'll talk a little bit about the, the different kind of timelines that we have. She was referred to in one account as a fortune teller. In another, somewhat more damningly, a bad old woman. <laughs> and one account states that for a piece of silver she guaranteed to give your enemy trouble by causing the chicken to have the roop his cattle, the ganders, <laughs> his pigs, the fever, and his wife, the creeping palsy, or any other trouble.
1: I mean, that's got to be good value for a piece of silver. guess, <laughs> <laughs> you
0: know,
1: I'm thinking... Quite Taking a lot, inflation. There's is quite, you know, the yes, a lot of people that you could, yeah.
0: Yes, absolutely. And there's also an account that tells of the memorable occasion that Mother Seville was put into the pillories on Cambridge market square and pelted with soft fruit as a sort of a punishment for her apparent witchy activities.
1: Like when Daphne and Celeste played at Reading. Yes (laughs) they were pelted.
0: I think they were pelted with worse than soft fruit unfortunately. It was you. It wasn't us. No (laughs) it wasn't us. So, there does seem to be some actual fact to the story of Mother Seville. It seems likely that she was actually a woman called Susanna Seville who lived in Trumpington. And she was indicted in 1806 for the crime of keeping a disorderly house. And sentenced. (laughs) (laughs) We're all in trouble. Um, And sentenced to two hours in the pillories. And there's a record of this sentence kept. So the crime of keeping a disorderly house was used when a, a particular dwelling and the inhabitants of that dwelling were believed to be acting in a bawdy or indecent manner, bringing a kind of corrupting influence to a community. So make of that what you will as to what Susanna Seville was well, up to. The landlord of the swan should constantly be in the <laughs> stocks in that case. Once she became known that people came forward to say, they had seen a number of gentlemen and young ladies to and froing from the house and others had said she took money for fortune-telling, which was frowned on. But not illegal? But not illegal, no. Just not cricket. No. The Cambridge Chronicle reported that during her punishment in the pillories... So the pillories, just to uh, clarify, is actually, I think, what, what we now think usually gets called the stocks, which is where your, your hands and your head go in into a kind of wooden frame and you would be put in this public place and the pelting of the fruit or the... It's really degrading and it's, horrible, is It's, isn't it's it? absolutely, it's, really... it's, it's a punishment of humiliation, mm. yeah. And the stocks that often I think people think is what the pillories are, the stocks is where your feet are in the, your feet are in the, uh, the wooden boards. So the Cambridge Chronicle reports that during her punishment Susanna was very talkative and impudent. Okay abusing many persons whom she saw among the spectators in vulgar and indecent language. And her whole conduct, she showed a most depraved and abandoned spirit. I think
1: um, you would, though, if
0: you're, you know, <laughs> people are throwing their mouldy vegetables at yeah. you, you're going to, you wouldn't a, like no. it. I found this information about Susanna Seville on the Capturing Cambridge website, which is a brilliant resource as well. It's really good, actually, you can basically find any address or uh, lots of diff- street addresses, buildings and things in Cambridge, and there's history, if there's notable history from that address or that building, you can read about it, it's brilliant. So, I've just wanted to start with that, because I think it's a really typical story, of a woman in a community who acts in a way which isn't necessarily in line with how people expect her to act. And as you said, Katie, it's it's 1800 is is later than the kind of Mm. the fever of the witch trials, which were during the 1600s, the Matthew Hopkins witch trials. But we can see that the ideas around witches in the community really persisted. So although you're not necessarily going to be hung anymore, for supposed witchy activities. There's a narrative there already that people like Susanna Seville could kind of be slotted into and then accounts of her misdemeanors or whatever it was afterwards, take on this idea that she goes from being a, a woman who kept a disorderly house to being a witch. And she goes from Susanna Seville to Mother Seville, which is this kind of slightly more folkloric name. And everyone just gets in and jumps on the bandwagon. Don't exactly, they? it's like you don't like her; she's doing something different.
1: Yeah. We'll all yeah pitch yeah. in,
0: be horrible. And we can also see really familiar tropes to do with beliefs around witchcraft in that story as well. Mm. So the, the kind of the the vulgar behaviour is something that we see again and again as used as, this is how witches behave. They're really vulgar and they're indecent. Especially and they're... when they're
1: women, isn't it?
0: Because they, yeah, when it was men being witches, they weren't doing as much. They're not as indecent, I mm. think. They're not seen as being quite so indecent or obscene. The idea of paying her the silver to cause harm to animals or to people that is like absolutely one of the primary things in so many accounts of witchcraft is this idea that this person made my cattle get sick or this person gave my wife the vapors or um, or the ganders ganders, whatever the mysterious ganders may be (laughs) so yeah it's a good starting point and i think as we go through we'll see some other examples around the, the the sort of beliefs Of the Susanna Seville story and how that links into other witch beliefs. Now witchcraft and folk magic, a couple of very slight (laughs) quite vague definitions but I just thought it's worth talking a little bit about what I mean by the difference between those two things like why have I distinguished witchcraft from folk magic there. As a loose definition, witchcraft is usually believed to be more relating to a, a sort of set of beliefs or a set of rules or ideas. It's like a, a sort of value system, a belief system. Like a faith? Or, kind not? Of a, or is that yeah, too far? It may be a little far, but okay. I think it's, we'll it's more of a religious idea than folk magic is. And in the context, of course, of the history of the witch trials in East Anglia and elsewhere, women being accused of various crimes, it's very much this idea that the witch is in league with the devil, they've done a deal with the devil, things that they're doing are... <laughs> From that sort of devilish, devilish idea. So the devil has kind of granted the powers to the woman, and she's using them to cause mayhem, or cause harm within a community. Deal with the devil. Looking back from our position now, I would say for me a really crucial distinction between witchcraft and folk magic as well is the label of witch and witchcraft is very much something that was imposed from without, if you like, because we we know now that a lot of the Accusations of this, of course, were c- spurious and it was a land grab or it was a malicious, you know, some malicious gossip within the community. Someone didn't like the way their neighbour had looked at them and they yeah. decided... It's all the
1: evil looking and stuff, is The isn't evil it? eye, yeah. exactly. Your washing's far too clean, you can't be right. <laughs> it's
0: not OK. How have you done this in yeah. 1650? Look how shiny your front porch is, it's not OK. You know, people weren't self-identifying as witches. It was people were being accused of being witches and committing witchcraft folk magic on the other hand is a bit more of a it was a kind of little day-to-day things that people did that we might call superstition or we might call charms amulets things that that everyday people were doing just because they thought oh, this is just going to make our lives a little bit better it's going to bring us a little bit of luck it's going to protect us against some of these other Evil forces that we think are in the world. Like
1: I don't like stepping on an odd number of paving stones if I can help it. Right.
0: So are you constantly? Counting?
1: Well, like when there's drains and things, you want a two or a four. Mm. <laughs> you definitely don't want a three or a one. You got to go around those odd numbers. Hang on. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, mean, it doesn't like you've walked with me. It's like I can I do. way you're
0: constantly counting drains. I've been doing that forever. <laughs> Because okay. you
1: can't go over an odd number. That's madness. Right. Okay. <laughs> well, there we are.
0: So I think. But you know, you just, know, just <laughs> a little protection in daily so what life. So what will happen. You'll go in the drain. Or we'll
1: just awful bad luck. <laughs> Doom.
0: You know. And I think some things like that do persist. To, I know a lot of people who won't open an umbrella inside, for example.
1: And putting salt over your shoulder, because we were yeah, salt. we spilled some salt today in preparation for this, and so it had to go over Edward's Ooh, shoulders. What's, where's the salt gone? I'll tell you in a little bit. <laughs> 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 Mostly so there, over Edward's shoulders. There are,
0: um, There's still kind of little things like that that, you know, we don't necessarily 100% believe in, yeah. but we're like, we'll oh, just do them. We'll just, just to be, just to be safe. And I think a lot of these old kind of folk magic ideas are a little bit like that. But some of them definitely were in response to the idea that witchcraft was the thing. There were witches and they could be plotting against you, they could be planning to curse you, they could be putting the evil eye on your house. So one of the things that I'll talk about later is the idea of protective magic and the little everyday bits of folk magic that people did to protect themselves against witchcraft.
1: I think that's really interesting because I didn't know that, that a witch was always like a slanderous name. Because nowadays well, people associate being a witch, don't they? Mm. Um, so, but I didn't know that it was always going to be Well,
0: I don't think, I'm um, look... I'm not saying definitively. No, but just that <laughs> but in general, I think. Yeah, that, that um, idea that you're
1: not proclaiming yourself or whichever no. someone else is no, accusing you. No, because the you.
0: consequences would be mm. quite quite dire in a lot of circumstances. Today, really, what I want to think about is the beliefs that people had about witchcraft and what the effects of those beliefs were, as opposed to saying, you know, this trial happened and this trial happened. It's like, what did people believe, and what were the consequences of those beliefs in Cambridgeshire and East Anglia? Pesky witches, I've written. <laughs> well, Pes- yeah. Pesky witches. What did people think that witches were doing? So, there was obviously through the 1600s, Matthew Hopkins and John Stern were rampaging around East Anglia. Ooh, is that the mulled wine? <laughs>
1: <laughs> it's a cauldron going, it's, it's <laughs> a...
0: a bubbling cauldron. Should I just say,
1: I did not know how young they were till I listened to your episode on that. Yeah, it's crazy.
0: Yeah, Matthew Hopkins died when he was 27. So, if you know anything about Matthew Hopkins, he caused an insane amount of damage and harm to people in a really short space of time. It was really just a few years. Pretty nasty. Dead by tuberculosis by the time he was 27. So, I mean, that's (laughs) karma. Good riddance to him. So, during, during that time, that was kind of the mid 1600s, these fears around witchcraft were really kind of being whipped up in communities. But as we've seen with the story of Mother Seville, Susanna Seville, it continued. The the prosecutions were not as heinous, but people still believed in these things for a long time. Um, And there's reports in accounts of local histories of the region. Even into the 20th century, some people were still doing some of these bits of folk magic to protect themselves against witchcraft or bad luck. So we can't think of it as just necessarily being, this is kind of all done. It's, it's in relatively recent history that some of these stories come from. What were the witches doing, Katie?
1: Uh, riding brooms.
0: <laughs> Having
1: cats. Um, or just being little old ladies going about their business with a few extra herbs in their garden and everyone's being horrible to them. Sometimes, yes. Yeah. Or their washing's too white and everyone's jealous. <laughs> and their cakes are too good.
0: And it's like, how can we I do feel that? like a lot of your witchy things is just jealousy.
1: <laughs> <laughs> like, their cakes are too good. I'm a good. very bitter
0: person. Their sheets are so white. How are they doing this? The primary complaint... Oh, hang on. I've got some slides. I'll just show you this one. This is just an engraving of some, some witches getting up to mm. some business. Um, <laughs> I like the little goat man up top. Mm. I like the horns. I mean, yeah. that's, a, you know, that's a bold look for the daytime. <laughs> You can see that this fellow across on the, um, the far side, his feet are unusual kind of paws, yeah. some cauldron brewing going on in the middle, horned I mean, this figures. this implies witches are clearly everywhere. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> this is a gathering, I think. The primary complaint was that witches were causing sickness, death, illness, crops not growing. It seems like actually the idea that, of causing harm to livestock was in some cases seen almost as more egregious than causing harm to people. And if you think about, the, these are rural communities. You know, if you lose your herd of cattle or if you lose your sheep, you lose your chickens. That's. It's all over. It's all over, exactly. That's, it, Whereas daughters, <laughs> you've got hundreds of them. <laughs> just get another Let's one. Let's have another one. So this is the primary complaint and that really is, it shows you that it's really rooted in these kind of rural agricultural communities. The the complaints against witches were very much about harm being done to that way of life. We also see a lot of stories from Cambridgeshire about witches causing people to have infestations of lice.
1: Is that just because they're all really itchy and dirty at this point? I mean, and maybe they had the lice just, already. Oh, now I'm itching.
0: Um, but it, <laughs> yeah, sorry, you'll all just be scratching after the lice talk. But that comes up again and again, that, you know, my whole family is now infested with lice, my home is infested with lice. But then, it, like, anyone
1: lice. could give you the lice. Yes. Like, you're just in the pub, you're having a tankard, and then you've got lice, you know, it's
0: not... <laughs> the tankard's covered in lice. Well, just the pub's covered in lice, you know. <laughs> Causing fits and seizures. When we looked at the Witches of War Boys... We saw that one of the it was a case where there was a family called the Throckmortons, and That's they had a five. Name. It's a good name. There were five daughters, five Throckmorton daughters, and they one by one, this sort of contagion, if you like, uh, started to suffer from fits and perpetual sneezing was one of the terrible things that happened to these That's Throckmorton such a girls. nightmare. You just <laughs> <laughs> this, and also these, like, I fits there's no There's
1: no tissues. You no. Know?
0: Just, just a li- some lice. Yeah, just That's right. all you've got. <laughs> that or an eel, and it's all just. <laughs> so there's all the, all these ideas of the the contagion and the different sort of fits and seizures and lice and illness that the witches could cause. There are also stories about witches ensorceling animals to do their bidding. So if people's animals, horses, started to behave in a strange way, people were like, "Well, clearly there's been." A witch yeah, it can't possibly here. be just the animals having
1: a funny day. Yeah. It's yeah. got to be someone's fault. Blame yeah. someone.
0: How did the witches do their terrible deeds? How did people think that they were carrying out these mischiefs? Let's start with imps or familiars, as you may know cat? the term. It can be a black my cat. My cat would be a useless familiar. She is not <laughs> going to
1: be doing my bidding. She's not doing what anyone wants.
0: So this is, you might have seen this before, this is an engraving from the days of terrible... Terrible man, Matthew Hopkins. But she was under pressure, named these familiars. They said, we've seen some animals around your house and we think they're probably, we think they're familiars. Aren't they familiars? Tell us they're familiars. And then she came up with these various names for her familiars. She was just clearly naming things she could see, wasn't she? Well, (laughs) she was like, oh "Oh my (laughs) God, stop pricking me with pins, (laughs) I'll just say anything. You're thinking sack and sugar. (laughs) And vinegar. Oh, look, quick. Vinegar Tom. Very jolly there, Vinegar Tom at the bottom. Pie what racket. is Vinegar Tom? I think well, he's not he, mm, he's not quite a dog. No, he's got horns. A very thin cow. <laughs> oh. It's a greyhound
1: <laughs> cow cross, isn't it? Yeah, <laughs> a demon. A demon exactly.
0: So they're all not you know not quite. They're a bit recognisable, but they're not they're not quite there in terms of animals we know.
1: I think if I met Finnegan Tom on a dark night I would be scared.
0: We don't know how big he is. Well he's bigger than everything else in the picture. Or is he just at the front of the selfie (laughs) and then it's (laughs) just okay. Conveniently for witch hunters, familiars or imps were often just domestic animals. So they'd be like, you seem to have quite a lot of chickens around here. Could these be imps? I've seen a toad on your premises. Maybe that's an imp. Cats as you say. Very common. enjoy a cat. Toads, hares, rats. So really the sorts of animals you might expect. You know, no one's like, I've seen a tiger on the premises. (laughs) And I feel like that's an unusual thing. So you're probably in league with the devil. Your unicorn is giving (laughs) things away. Yeah. (laughs) Here's some imps in a box getting fed, I think, by a suspected witch. There's a story, there's a book called Bogey Tales of East Anglia. By M. H. James and she writes in that she gathers these stories together about a woman called Mary Chegriff, whose mother was apparently a witch. And Mary's mother had a box and she kept her imps in this box and they were described as being bat like, but not quite like bats, and they could get bigger and smaller and I'm just confused why she keep them in a box because then she clearly has to change that every week. It means that's, <laughs> that's, that's spoken not, like a a, that's, a
1: pet owner. <laughs> That's not nice. I mean, <laughs> Hmm,
0: interesting. Isn't a they litter going tray at, for the imps. An outdoor
1: hut should be better. More <laughs> but you air. want to
0: keep them protected. That's true. And from doing mischief without your That's orders, true. I think. And Mary Chegris' mother, as she lay on her deathbed, said to Mary, uh, she said, take the imps, open the box, take the imps, let them bite your breasts, and then that will transfer the power from me into you, and then you will have command of my imps. But Mary was a God-fearing girl. Also, I, you know, you don't want to be bitten. Well, no. <laughs> <Not at all. laughs> Maybe that was the, uh, the problem. And she, she, looked at, she looked at the box and she wavered uh, and then she flung the box in the fire and then apparently went up a hideous screaming as the imps in the box. Some people feel very sad for the imps. But I don't think they were actual imps. <laughs> I mean, I don't think there was anything in the box. <laughs> don't worry, don't worry. You, um, I thought you were
1: going to say it was full of something else by mistake, no, like she just I burnt a box was... of hedgehogs or something horrible.
0: <laughs> no. Well, I don't know. You said there was screaming. That's night's coming up. you oh, worries worried yeah. the hedgehogs. I am. And I'm afraid to say that the apparent presence of imps was really often used against women in the witch trials. And they could say, well, we've seen, as I say, like, some cats or some frogs around your premises. A woman in Cambridge was hanged in 1645 um, for keeping a tame frog, which people were convinced or or at trial. I'm not okay with that because you can't keep a tame frog. So your problem's the tame frog part. (laughs) Yes, well, no, I mean, obviously
1: the horrible death is like really horrible, but like, how would you know it's tame? You've got a frog in an aquarium, someone comes and looks at it. I think it's in a box. But even so, like, that's not tame, you've just captured it. That's true, it's an imprisoned frog. Yeah, so that's not, that's, yeah, you've got a frog in a... It's not, you can't say someone's got a tame frog. The frog Um, wasn't doing her bidding. No, so therefore it's even more horrible that she was... The frog's not wearing a, you know, a little hat and and doing a little tap dance, is it?
0: One type of familiar that's persisted in imagery around witches right up to the present day, and I'm sure with Halloween approaching this weekend, we'll see plenty of black cats around the place. Enid Porter, who was a curator. (laughs) Excellent, firstly excellent. um, She was the curator of the Museum of Cambridge for a number of years. She wrote several amazing books, but there's a book called Cambridgeshire, Cambridgeshire Customs and Folklore, which has a big section on magic and witchcraft. And she gathers all these tales together from across the region of people that she's spoken to. And sometimes it's stories from their childhood or they say, oh, my grandmother told me this tale. And it's just this huge, amazing repertoire of of information. She tells in, in Cambridgeshire Customs and Folklore of a woman named Old Judy who lived in the most northerly cottages. Oh again she's been on old. the fen side of Burwell. That was her problem she was Can you old. guess they were run down? Yes. <laughs> run down cottages. cottages. She's old. Oh no. Rather like Mother Seville, She was thought to engage in all sorts of w- witchy mischief. Locals who still remembered the story recounted the following verse to Porter. A wicked old crone who lived all alone in a hut beside the reeds with a high-crowned hat and a black tomcat whose looks were as black as her deeds. So there we see some of the familiar tropes of, of what comes to be seen as that kind of modern witch as well, of the, the tall hat, the ugly face, oversized features, and the, oh, the familiar hat yeah. being the familiar. And again, there is um, a little bit of truth, seemingly, in the story of old Judy. The census of 1841 records a woman named Judah Finch. She was a farmer who lived in North Street in Burwell. Thankfully, there's no evidence that she was ever you know pilloried or or tried for anything anything. she was just known around the community as being a bit witchy maybe up to no good and she's still remembered to this day in the geography of the region of the area there's a large watery pit near burwell which is called judy's hole I mean, I find the frog difficult. I'm not okay with this There's also, um, I haven't had it, but I've only found out about it this week, but I will investigate. There's a beer that Burwell Brewery make, which is also called Judy's Hole. (laughs) So, have to try that. (laughs) Okay, so imps, a sure sign, a sure sign of witchery. How else did they do their evil bidding? Spells, herbs. The evil eye. Oh.
1: The evil eye. Is this like the children in my class who say she's looking at me Katie's funny? of the teacher. Yes.
0: Just to clarify.
1: Yeah, no. But they always are saying they're looking at me funny. Well, yeah. if you weren't looking at them in the first place, you wouldn't know. <laughs> that's so true. Stop
0: looking at each other. Avert <laughs> your eyes, children. Yes. Well, look at your own work and it wouldn't be a problem. Oh, uh, well, yeah, that's true. So this is also, you find the idea of the evil eye is also referred to as overlooking. So people would say, "Oh, she was overlooking me." or she overlooked my cattle, she overlooked my house." Is that why town planners now don't let you look over at someone else's garden? <laughs> 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 They're like, "Nope. Witches. Maybe." Uh, and the idea was that through this, this evil gaze, they could put a curse onto you or your, or your animals or your wife, or they could do or this.: Your hay on your hay. Make your hay go moldy. Mm. Yeah. your bread rotten. And exactly like you say, Katie, this seems to me a bit, it's the sort of thing that, you know, is that your evidence in court if mm. you've accused someone of being a witch and you're just going to go, well, they did look at me a bit funny. <laughs> <laughs> they did look at me a bit funny. So hard to, hard to qualify, I'd say. Yeah. If I didn't have my glasses on, I'd be looking at everyone funny. I'm very short-sighted. I'd just be do squint at the swimming pool. Squinting around. But I don't think that makes you a witch. (laughs) I'm very bad at the swimming pool because I cannot see anything at all. It's quite fun, she doesn't know who you are. (laughs) (laughs) So as we'll see in a bit, a lot of the ideas around protective magic against witchcraft are based around the idea of how can we repel the evil eye? How can we prevent the evil eye from falling upon us? Another way was image magic. And image magic, I will click us on. So, who's this little fellow, he's upstairs in the museum here. He is called, he's a corp, oh, now Amy, <laughs> help me, <Corp-creth. laughs> a corp creeth, which is a, a Gaelic word and the spelling is quite tricky. But I think this, to all of us in this day and age, we'd probably, if I say to you voodoo doll, I think you'll kind of, kind of get the idea. of of what the wreath was about. It's a kind of a clay form, which is made rudimentarily to look, you know, you wouldn't guess who that is gonna be, but you're making a figure and you're imbuing it with the idea of a particular person that you want to do ill to. And you can see all these pins. So this has been quite an abused clay body, I'd say. (laughs) The amount of- Someone is really unhappy. (laughs) Exactly. So image magic actually wasn't necessarily just practiced by witches as it were it was actually it was it seems to be the sort of thing anyone could do you know if you want to make yourself a little a little clay figure and stick some pins in it it's not a kind of there's there's no expertise behind it <laughs> i don't think necessarily i can't find many accounts of these clay bodies in east anglia actually a lot of the the things that I found about them seems to be from Scotland. So I think they were much more um, a Scottish tradition. And I found a description from the Folklore Journal, this is from 1895, from an article about folklore objects collected in Argyllshire. I think we can assume the use would be similar across the, across the country. So, when a person had conceived an ill will to another, the corp... Creith. Creith. <laughs> was used as a means of effecting destruction to the person disliked without injury to the user. That's very strong, isn't it? Affecting destruction, very strong. It was made of clay, like in form to the human body. Pins were put into it, and with every pin an incantation was said. When it was desired that the person to be injured should die a lingering death, care was taken that the pins should not touch where the heart was supposed to be. But when a speedy death was desired, the pins were stuck over the region of the heart. So this person is really cross and they've gone through <laughs> the speed Absolutely, yeah, yeah. They've gone all around, Yeah, maybe at the end, yeah. they've gone for the heart. Yeah, You can see it's, it might be it's the angle, it looks like it's slightly more to the, yes. the left-hand side, the heart side of the body.
1: Mm.
0: But you've gone for some vital organs first, I think.
1: I mean, this is definitely someone who's cross as well, isn't it? That's a lot of pins.
0: Yeah. And also in this article from Folklore, the author adds that another way of punishing the person or getting your vengeance, destroying the clay body, was to submerge it in running water. And then the clay would be slowly washed away. And as the clay was washed away, the, the person, the intended victim, would waste away as That's well. That's so dark. I mean dark. I d-
1: I think I find that more disturbing than the stabbing with pins. Just mm. the idea
0: of wasting away to nothing. And... The pins have like an anger to them, yes. and the, you're going to have to commit to the it's more vindictive. Yeah. You're doing it, yeah. Wasting away in the uh, in the water. Now we've heard about the beliefs in witchcraft. <clears throat> How did people protect themselves? What kind of folk magic did they use? We have, at the back, if you'd like to... Oh, Alex will come forward. This is a very beautiful... A witch ball. It is really beautiful. Which is absolutely incredible. A glass... A glass bauble. I mean, they're like a, a giant Christmas bauble, aren't they? It is, like the
1: first Christmas bauble. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Do you know when, it's, when it dates from, this one?
1: We think you see different examples at mid to late 17th century, sometimes that you find them in the early... Um, uh, early 18th century as well. We think this one and the one that we have upstairs are 17th century. So that one is a slightly smaller one which we have upstairs. This one is much bigger. Mm-hmm. Kind of kind of double the size of Christmas bottle size if you would have it. Um, but they're just really spectacular And so shiny and so well done for their for their age and for, for their make. So hung in windows. Mm-hmm. You would almost have like a Christmas bowl like you'd put on display. And um, I'm sure you'll say, I don't want to steal any <laughs> but the reflection of a witch... And her witch's ball would then keep her away from a home and keep a family safe from them. So yeah. we have two beautiful
0: examples in the museum. This one and the one upstairs. Too. There's, There's a, the yeah, slightly smaller, lighter blue one upstairs as well, isn't there? And then the gold one at the top is in the V&A. Mm-hmm. Um, so you do see them in, in different colours as well. As Alex says, they were you would hang them in in windows or doorways or places where you would b- use them to like dazzle and repel mm-hmm. a witch that might want to cast her evil eye upon your house. And these would be a shiny distraction i've
1: always wanted one well, when i was a child they uh, they're in the children of green no books and oh. um and and they have them she has them in her garden and they do mm. repel
0: the evil witch when she comes mm. they're like
1: anti-witch disco balls yes <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much that's so cool that's wonderful
0: thanks alex yeah so they're different sizes different colors these amazing glass I've what never seen we... a gold
1: one before, I've heard lots of green no. and blue
0: ones, but that's amazing too. If you didn't know what, what they were for or what they were about, you'd think, oh, it's an ornament. But they had this meaning for people that they were seen as a way of protecting their household and repelling the evil eye of a witch in the community. And Enid Porter has said as well that she, she had heard them also called watch balls. And the idea was that if the surface changed from shiny to cloudy, it was a portent of ill will. So you could, you could keep an eye on your shiny ball, and then if you saw the surface beginning to change, that meant that bad luck was coming your way. Now, witch bottles, which are another repellent for witches that people would have in their houses. So this is, is like an early example. Early examples of witch bottles were usually these ceramic, what were called bellamine jars, and they would typically have this kind of scary bearded face on them.
1: I just read a fictional book where a girl catches an evil spirit in one of these. In a bellamine jar. Yes, and how she does it is she puts a bit of bacon in the bottom and oh, then goes well, around with the jar. It. It's like in the 1700s, I think, in the, what it's fictional, but it's a Dutch girl, And because I know ah. you said that they were German.
0: Yeah, so these, these were typically made in Germany and then imported to the UK and, and in the 17th century these were used as witch bottles and people would put things inside them that they thought could be used to guard against witchcraft or guard against, again, the evil eye being turned upon the house. They would often be placed at entrances and exits to the house as a kind of guardian of the threshold kind of idea. But sometimes they also would be placed near a fire or near the fireplace near the hearth and sometimes they would blow up and that was seen as a sign that the witch had escaped, essentially. What did people put in them? These
1: bottles. You told me this was going to happen. I know something about this for a change. I actually know (laughs) something. And all kinds of interesting things we've had
0: a go yeah we've made some witch soon? bottles let's I'll do a little injury yeah, I've got over excited <laughs> <laughs> so um, some of the things that typically would be put inside witch bottles iron nails iron pins iron was seen as a really a good solid protection against witchcraft that's another reason that people would hang horseshoes over doorways because iron was seen as a, a thing that would keep witches out salt mm. A protection against evil. If you've seen any occult films like "The Devil Rides Out," you may have seen a salt circle that they protect themselves within a salt circle, because it was thought that evil spirits couldn't cross the salt because they're scared of flavor. <laughs> they hate that flavor. Diabetes. They're scared of diabetes. <laughs> yes, they are. Some more bodily things would go into the witch bottles. Urine, hair would be placed in the bottles sometimes, fingernails. I mean, that's really grim. I have a little explanation about why people would put these kind of bodily pieces into them. This is taken from a book by Peter Tolhurst called This Hollow Land, and it's specifically about Norfolk and Norfolk folklore, but, you know, it kind of applies to the region. It was believed that when a witch placed a spell on their victim, it created what he calls a contagious bond. So there would, at that point the spell was made, there'd be a bond made between the witch and the victim. And this meant that that bond that the witch had created could actually, in a sense, be used against the witch as well. So if you placed your own kind of nail clippings or hair or urine into a witch bottle, you were making use of that bond. And then by heating the bottle by the fire, you were basically causing a horrible discomfort to the witch through those bits of your own body because of that contagious bond between the witch and victim.
1: That makes some sense. There's a logic it, to it. Yeah, yeah, there? yeah no, you can definitely there. see it. Ha, yeah. Okay, it's got to be more effective, I suppose, than throwing your mouldy cabbages
0: at, at the witch. The witch. Yes. <laughs> and there are texts, there's a text, for example, from 1671 by Joseph Blargrave called The Astrological Practice of Physic. And he can, includes, like, witch bottle recipes. So he's like, here's the best way to put your witch bottle together to have the maximum impact and like maximum Like the Delia Smith of his day. Delia Smith of, you of you his day. <laughs> exactly. There's also, it's quite interesting, but it's, it's a bit horrible. I know we've had a lot of horrible things happening to animals already. The idea of the contagious bond between victim and mm. witch. There are a lot of it's cases go where, well, for example, a herd of sheep or geese were seen to have been bewitched and one of those animals would be burned. And that was seen to be a way of harming the witch who had placed the spell. So they did really believe in this this contagious bond, this connection. So later as we head into the 18th century, bottles were more typically made of glass. And this is the bottle that's upstairs at the Museum of Cambridge. They didn't explode quite as much as the Bellamine jugs. <laughs> mm-hmm. There are a lot more examples of the glass witch bottles left, and you'll see them around, There's, a, you know, any sort of local museum will probably have examples of witch bottles from local houses that have been discovered. That's in the Museum of Witchcraft and Magic. This one we can see the contents a little bit. There's mm-hmm. some hair we can see in there. Katie and I made some yeah. witch bottles of our own. We thought we'd have a go. We did. Do you want to say what's in yours first? Okay. This is a lovely blue bottle. I got this in the lovely big antique shop in Ely by the river. So I went a bit classic with my witch Beautiful, bottle. You've so got rose, haven't you? You can't really mm. see, but so I put in some nails for sure protection. I put in some of Chris's toenail clippings. <laughs> I mean, it's good you're protecting Chris as well, you know. Uh, exactly. I put in um, some hair from Vinny, who's my cat, because I thought once to protect make sure, the whole household, want to make sure Vinny's okay. And then I just put in some little bells. Ah. <laughs> I thought they're quite shiny, so maybe they'll have a sort of witch ball effect. And also they're just a little mm. fun fun. Sound. <laughs> I know, I like it. <laughs> so that was it's my very little festive. bottle. The stopper doesn't match, I just... I just got that stopper,
1: but uh, the stopper is was good, wasn't it? Because these ones didn't crack as much. It, you, the witch, as though you know, she's escaped if the stopper comes mm. off. So you need a stopper. Mine hasn't got a stopper. I put some blue tack in it for the way, so it didn't spill in my bag. <laughs> but I don't think a that. A modern
0: solution. But I the like blue tack's
1: now out, so I don't know if that means my witch has escaped. Oh. Um, yes, sorry, everyone. So, what have you got in yours? <laughs> so, well, I read that later witch bottles, but the, like the later end of it, mm-hmm. they found that they had things like rosemary in them. Mm-hmm. So I put some rosemary in that You can smell it.
0: And um, I confirm it's rosemary. Marie. I put
1: uh, some salt in, which is why I was talking about the throwing salt yeah. earlier, because we had to do that. And then I put some things, because I also... You can
0: tell Katie's a teacher, because she's like, you can't see in this one, I've made a... <laughs> <I> to... made <laughs> that... A, a <laughs> demonstration one,
1: if you want to pass it around, Ed. <laughs> <laughs> um, there... Because <laughs> um, you couldn't see this one. Um, so I also read that later ones also had uh, tokens and things that were important to you. Mm-hmm. So I have put some beer and books in there, as well as the salt and rosemary. So beer? Yeah. Okay. You can see in that one. <laughs> and then I didn't have any iron, so I put in a magnesium tablet. <laughs> <laughs> Um, because I figured it's also an important mineral, so...
0: Absolutely! (laughs) Enid Porter also tells us a story that she was told about how a witch bottle, or, or a bottle of this sort, was used not to repel a witch, but to cast a spell, or to, um, a curse, if you like, just by a kind of an ordinary, an ordinary woman. Porter was told this story in around 1950 by a Soham resident, And she had witnessed the ritual as a child in around the year 1900. So this woman recounted that her mother was recently widowed in in around 1900 and was annoyed that her late husband's property and money passed not to her, but to her brother-in-law.
1: Which is fair.
0: Fair to be annoyed, (laughs) yeah. yeah. Um, I mean, annoyed is mild. (laughs) She was advised by another woman with some knowledge of magic to fill a bottle with her own urine, If she could get it, some snippets of hair or nail clippings from the brother-in-law. How are you going to ask for that? Well, (laughs) I guess you sneak a bit of hair.
1: I suppose hairbrush. Yeah. But you can't get someone's toenail clippings without asking them.
0: Then she should seal the bottle and at midnight, it's always midnight, push the bottle into the centre of a burning fire. If the bottle burst within two minutes time, the spell would be deemed a success and misfortune would befall the brother-in-law. The woman did all of it and, what's more, kept her children up with her to witness the ritual and to help in thinking bad thoughts about the (laughs) brother-in-law as they did it. Um, Hence this this girl knowing the whole story. The bottle burst and a few days later the unlucky fellow fell from a ladder and broke his leg. It never healed properly and he walked with a limp thereafter. However I mean it technically wasn't his fault he inherited the no, I suppose he could have given it to her. It hasn't really solved the problem. No, she doesn't <laughs> have her house. She still hasn't got the house or the money. So so it's She's more just of a, inflicted a horrible wound on someone. It's more of an act of vengeance than a than an act of um, problem solving, I think. Further magical house protection. So witch bottles and witch balls are examples of this idea of magical house protection. How can we keep ourselves safe? But there's a lot of other um, small, everyday examples and things that have been found in houses all around the region that we know that people placed within their houses to protect themselves, to ward off bad luck or to ward off the evil eye. Hagstones. Sorry, I'm not being a very good assistant. Also called adder stones. So this is a hagstone. This actually came from um, the beach at St Leonard's that (laughs) someone sent me. So a hagstone is just a stone with a hole right through the middle of it and you can see the future really that's what i know about
1: hagstones uh, in fact they just you look uh, through yeah if you if you look through you have to like let your mind go blank go a bit zen
0: okay and then look
1: through and you can see the future or what could be
0: only of what you're looking at
1: no as far as i'm aware
0: you'd have to okay my knowledge
1: of this <laughs> comes from fictional books again i like <laughs> historical <laughs> fiction <laughs> So uh, like the jug that you catch evil spirits in, mm. I know about this only from books, but okay. there's a, there was an idea that you could see the like, possibilities yes. with them. Oh, and I don't believe it needs to be what's directly in front of no, you. No, that would
0: be limited, wouldn't it? So um, there's all kinds of uh, hagstones have been found all around um, the region, hanging, again, kind of entranceways, doorways, that kind of thing. So that's a little, a little hagstone there. All sorts of other items have been found, concealed within thresholds, in fireplaces, in chimneys, in the walls. So mummified cats is quite a common one. I say mummified, just sort of dried up really. This is from Moyes Hall Museum in Bury St Edmunds. So uh, again, a lot of um, local museums, you can see these kind of examples that have been found locally. There's an author called Brian Hoggard who's written a lot about magical house protection. And he says that the thinking of cats is that throughout folklore, cats have been seen as having a kind of a sixth sense of having more of a connection to the spirit world. And that's why they're seen as being kind of appropriate animals to use to protect against evil and to ward against witchcraft. And they would sometimes be placed into these almost like a hunting pose like they're about to pounce like taxidermy, or they Yeah, so, so the, the, you know, as they protected a house against mice or rats when alive, that they would protect the house against demons or witches in Were death. these cats
1: killed for this, or were they cats that were dying?
0: I hope they were already yeah, okay. dead. <laughs> <laughs> I hope so. I
1: suspect, bear in mind we've just burnt a lot they, of animals I think that they, they might probably not would be. be.
0: Along similar lines, there have been several discoveries in Cambridgeshire of horse bones, concealed within buildings as well. This museum used to be the White Horse Inn, many years ago before it was the Museum of Cambridge or the Folk Museum. And there were stables that are now demolished that were on the site. And a horse skull was discovered when the stables were demolished, buried under the floor. And in a similar way, the horse was seen as being a kind of protective animal that was used to protect against uh, against evil. I have another story about horses. Horse, horse Bones, Horse Heads, by W.H. Barrett. If you know of Fen history, you may have come across him. Again, he sort of collected stories from his family himself, his, his friends. Tales from the Fens and More Tales from the Fens are the two kind of the books <laughs> of W.H. Barrett. <laughs> Sorry, I just was a little... Come on. You want more imagination? Well, a little bit, Barrett. Come on. Because <laughs> they're good Tales from the Fens, yeah. but give it a bit of something. Um, and Barrett recounts that in 1897... He was six, he was six years old. His uncle was a builder, and his uncle was given the contract to build a new primitive Methodist chapel in Littleport. Barrett's uncle sent him, six years old, and his older brother to the knacker's yard to procure a horse's head. I'm sorry, that's, you can't do that with a child. Well, in those days, <laughs> they duly took the head back to the building site. Well, the children carried a head back. Two of them.
1: <laughs> Maybe they <laughs> Have you seen a horse?
0: <laughs> Maybe they had a little sling that they carried between them. It's going to be really messy. <laughs> they took the head back to the building site where the chapel was being erected. The foundations were just being dug in and Barrett's uncle marked the central spot on the site with a wooden stake. They put the head into that central trench. The uncle then uncorked a bottle of beer, poured out the first glass and poured that over the horse's head. Like, doing it for your dead homies. <laughs> sorry, that oh wasn't God. sensible. I'm sorry, it's, it's, gone, it's gone quite late. I've lost it, sorry, I apologise. Um, and then the, the workmen all around drank the rest of the beer. How big was the beer? Well, they probably just had a little oh, so. OK, just a token. Um, and then, uh, once they'd drunk all the beer, they shoveled bricks and mortar, onto the trench on top of the horse's head. And work proceeded, so the chapel was built on top of this foundation with the horse's head inside. And the men, the workmen and the uncle, explained to Barris and his brother that this was an old custom designed to drive evil and witchcraft away from the site. Shoes as well, if you look back here, all shoes at the bottom. That's again Moys Hall, so they're ones that have been found locally to Bury St Edmunds. And then this shoe is, is here in the Museum of Cambridge as well I've got just one final suggestion for protective magic again from a story told to Enid Porter passed down from the 1800s tie a knot of scarlet ribbon to your underwear every day and witches will be able to do you no harm well (laughs) I can
1: tell you that Ruth told me this one and so
0: Ah.
1: and I have had a really good day
0: (laughs) and do you know what I have got a ribbon too and I didn't think of the bra so, oh, you're <laughs> just, <laughs> <laughs> so I won't get that <laughs>
1: and so have you been doing this every day or is it just today? <laughs> just
0: today. So um, that's just a little bit of everyday folk magic that you can, you can try to uh, see if it, it brings you good luck and makes you I really have had a, a good day. Better. I yeah. mean this is lovely. <laughs> um, and I think that's the end of my talk on witchcraft and folk magic. So um, thank you so much. Thank yeah. <laughs> you.